A Mouthful of Air, a poetry podcast with Mark McGuinness. I but to die, and go we know not where, to lie in cold obstruction, and to rot, this sensible warm motion, to become a kneaded clod, and the delighted spirit to bathe in fiery floods, or to reside in thrilling region of thick ribbed ice to be imprisoned in the viewless winds and blown with restless violence round about the pendant world, or to be worse than worst of those that lawless and incertain thought imagine howling. Tis too horrible. The weariest and most loathed worldly life that age Ache, penury and imprisonment can lay on nature is a paradise to what we fear of death. This speech is from Act Three, Scene One of Shakespeare's play Measure for Measure. It's spoken by Claudio, a young man in the city of Vienna who has been condemned to death. He's talking to his sister, Isabella, a devoutly Christian young woman who has just entered a convent. Isabella is visiting Claudio in prison and she's just told him that she has been propositioned with a disgraceful bargain by Angelo, the deputy of the Duke of Vienna. Angelo has told Isabella that he is prepared to release Claudio and spare his life if Isabella will sleep with him. Isabella is of course shocked and offended by this and as a virtuous and chaste member of the convent she says she cannot possibly commit such a terrible sin even to save her brother's life. And when she tells Claudio about the offer, at first, he's just as shocked and angry as she is. And he says he couldn't possibly live with the shame of having his life ransomed by his sister's virginity. But then the full implications of the situation sink into him. And he starts to say to Isabella... But on the other hand, maybe we shouldn't be so hasty about this. And the two of them get into an argument until, at this point, Claudio's fear of death breaks through and produces this amazing speech. And I know what you're thinking. 
The story sounds absurdly convoluted and contrived, even by Shakespeare's standards. But really, I don't think we need to worry about that to appreciate the speech. I mean, the fear of death is such a universal feeling, and it's expressed so powerfully here that it's very easy for us to relate to what Claudio is saying. I mean, you could easily put this speech in, into a poetry anthology or even a podcast and appreciate it as a poem in its own right. And specifically in relation to Claudio, throughout the play, he's a pretty unremarkable character and at no other point does he say anything remotely as eloquent or as compelling as this. So it doesn't really feel like we're hearing an individual character's voice here. It's more like Shakespeare is giving voice to a universal emotion. I mean, imagine if you or I were in the position of being asked by somebody close to us, you know what? It would be great if you could take one for the team and offer up your life as a sacrifice for the greater good or for a moral principle. I think at some point we would all come back with something very like this speech. And in the context of Shakespeare's work as a whole, this is a rare glimpse into his vision of the afterlife. You know, he's typically far more interested in the here and now, this worldly life, as he puts it in this speech. A few years earlier than Measure for Measure, Hamlet describes death as the undiscovered country from whose born no traveller returns and talks about the dread of something after death. But he doesn't say very much about that something. But here, Claudio is much more specific about his fears and gives us this incredible description of the torments of the damned. But we should also remember that Shakespeare is still depicting the fears of a living man. He's not speculating himself or describing the afterlife in great detail. It's not Dante's Inferno. And, you know, Dante was the opposite of Shakespeare in this respect, because he seems to have been mainly interested in worldly life as a prelude to a transfigured life, either the new life, la vita nuova, granted by romantic love, or the life after death in hell, purgatory or heaven, which he described in mind-boggling detail in the Divine Comedy. There's a great passage in T.S. Eliot's essay on Dante where he makes an extended comparison between Shakespeare and Dante. And he says he's not going to talk about who was the better poet because he cannot admit the question. But he does say, if you try to imitate Dante, the worst that's going to happen is that you're going to be pedestrian and flat. But if you try to imitate Shakespeare you will make an utter fool of yourself. And I think this speech demonstrates exactly what Eliot is talking about. You know, Dante's Inferno is just as horrible and scary as this. But it's also incredibly well organised. All the sinners are neatly categorised and filed away in different levels of hell with appropriate punishments for the different types of sin. And Dante's descriptions are so detailed that editions of the Inferno routinely include maps of hell with all the different levels and, and the roads and the bridges that the travellers take on their journey. 
And similarly, Dante's figurative language has an incredible clarity and also precision to it. Seamus Heaney refers to Dante's head-clearing similes, as if, you know, his poetic comparisons acted like a kind of menthol lozenge for the mind. For example, in Canto 13, Dante the Pilgrim, i.e. the character in the story, and his mentor, the Roman poet Virgil, are walking through a wood in hell, and Dante is surprised to hear groans coming from the trees around him. He breaks off a twig from one of the trees, and the tree starts talking and explains that he was once a man. And then Dante the poet, i.e. the writer, brings this extraordinary scene to life with a simple everyday simile. As from a green log that is burning at one of its ends, and from the other drips and hisses with the air that is escaping, so from that broken splinter came out words and blood together. So, obviously, this is a prose English translation. It doesn't have the the music and the magic of the original. But it's still so vivid that I have absolutely no doubt that Dante is drawing on a memory here of having watched a wood fire burning, and years later he used it for his simile, his comparison. Now, this kind of writing is deceptively simple because it's extremely hard to do it as well as Dante does. But I do think it's possible to imagine reading a bit of Dante like this and naively thinking, well, maybe I could do something a bit like that and produce something, as as Eliot points out, competent but dull. But I don't think many of us would read this speech from Measure for Measure and think, oh yeah, I could have a go at that. (laughs) I mean, imagine trying to map this. It's like Shakespeare has taken the inferno and put it in the blender. So one moment we've got this image of this sensible warm motion, the living body that becomes a kneaded clod. It's decomposing and going back to the earth. But then suddenly in the same sentence... We've got, and the delighted spirit. In other words, the human spirit enthralled to the delights of earthly life is being bathed in fiery floods. And just as we're getting our heads round that, we find ourselves trudging through thrilling regions of thick ribbed ice. Thrilling in those days would have meant cold or shivering rather than really exciting. (laughs) And then a split second later, we're imprisoned in the viewless winds, the invisible winds, and blown hither and thither about the pendant world, i.e. the world hanging in space. And then the final terrifying image, or to be worse than worst of those that lawless and in certain thought imagine howling. In other words, Claudio says, it is literally our worst nightmare when lawless and incertain thought, our thoughts run completely out of control, imagine the worst out of all the worst souls in hell who are howling and screaming in pain forever and ever. So we've got this series of images blended in or mashed up together in quick succession. If we think of an analogy with painting, 
Dante's Inferno is a bit like one of those amazing paintings of hell by Hieronymus Bosch or Peter Bruegel, where there are hundreds of figures being roasted or frozen or chopped in pieces or eaten alive by monsters, all depicted in excruciating detail. But Shakespeare's technique is more like Goya or even Turner, slapping on the paint and swirling it around. It's not as detailed and precise and it could easily be a complete mess in the wrong hands. But actually, when you stand back and you look at it, you see the scene with unmistakable vividness and motion and energy. Somehow, it all hangs together. So, going back to Eliot's statement, it's very easy to see how you or I could make a complete fool of ourselves if we tried to do this. I mean, if we got the Shakespearean blender into our poetic kitchen, we'd probably end up with the images splattered all over the walls. But for Shakespeare, miraculously, it's not a mess. The different elements of the speech seem to be pulling in all different directions, but it does hold together. It's like a hurricane that's incredibly destructive, but it's got a structural integrity of its own. And it sweeps us along with it, from being a clod of kneaded earth, to being washed in floods of fire, to picking our way across the land of ice, and then being imprisoned, which sounds really solid. You know, you think of stone and iron, but in the viewless winds, the invisible winds, which is a pretty weird image. I mean, you you literally can't visualise it, but somehow it works. And if we look at this sequence of images through the eyes of Shakespeare's contemporaries, then to them, I think it would be obvious that he's working through the sequence of the four elements. Earth, fire, water and air. Which, for them, were the basis of all existence. The stuff of the cosmos. Just like we take atoms and subatomic particles for granted, as that's what the world is made of. And... You know, the four elements composed human beings as much as the physical world, as described in a famous passage from Christopher Marlowe's play, Tamburlaine the Great. Nature that framed us of four elements warring within our breasts for regiment doth teach us all to have aspiring minds. So the idea was that in every person, the four elements are mixed together. That's what creates a human being. And they produce the four humours, which were the basis of Renaissance medicine and also a kind of personality typing system. So, air related to blood and produced the sanguine temperament. Fire related to yellow bile and the choleric personality. Earth was black bile and melancholy. And water was phlegm, and the phlegmatic character. And ideally, they're all supposed to be balanced and in harmony. Quite often in the drama of the period, we hear descriptions of characters in terms of imbalance between the humours. Well, you know, he's too phlegmatic, that's his problem. Or, he's too choleric, or she's too melancholic. And to us, it sounds like figurative language, but to Shakespeare's original audience, it would be a self-evident truth about what humans were made of. So, presumably for them, 
the horror of Claudio's speech would have been heightened by a sense that this was a human body and soul being ripped apart and reduced to its elements. Anyway, after that catalogue of horrors, I think we can all relate to the end of the speech when Claudio is clinging to life. On one level, he's pleading to Isabella, but he's also just kind of talking to himself, telling himself that however bad life is, however old you are, however much pain you're in, however much penury, i.e. poverty, you experience, even if you're in prison, it is infinitely preferable to the alternative. The weariest and most loathed worldly life that age, ache, penury and imprisonment can lay on nature is a paradise to what we fear of death. So Shakespeare takes us on this incredibly rapid and terrifying journey. It's like a spiritual roller coaster or a ghost train. And by the end, we are all screaming and wanting to get off. But what is powering the roller coaster? That's right, it's our new friend who we met last month. Blank verse. The unrhymed iambic pentameter, the famous titum, 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 that was the main verse form used in Elizabethan and Jacobean drama. So, last month, if you remember, we looked at a speech from Christopher Marlowe's play, Dr. Faustus. It was written about ten years before Shakespeare wrote Measure for Measure, when blank verse was at an earlier stage of its development. So, it was a fairly orderly and regular metre. Was this the face that launched a thousand ships? and burnt the topless towers of Ilium. So we can hear, can we not, the regular rhythm ticking away steadily here. And, if you recall, we also encountered a few reversed feet, where instead of titum, a line would kick off with tumty, like this. Yea, I will wound Achilles in the heel, and then return to Helen for a kiss. Hear that yea, I the strong stress kicks off the line with a burst of energy, and then it relaxes back into regular iambic pentameter. And then return to Helen for a kiss. So, the speech of Marlowe's characters, and early Shakespeare and most other playwrights around that time, ten years previously, the early 1590s, is really dominated by the meter. And there's a bit of room for expressive variation, but not much. And there's also a teeny bit of enjambment where the syntax spills over from one line to another. But overall, it's really easy when you hear it aloud to hear where one line stops and the next one starts. But by the time we get to Measure for Measure, in the middle period of Shakespeare's career, he was a virtuoso at using blank verse as an incredibly flexible and vivid and powerful medium for expressing all kinds of emotions and states of mind and dramatic situations. And in Claudio's speech, where he's expressing fear and terror, I think he does this in three main ways. Firstly, he keeps the iambic pentameter moving forward. As we've just seen, 
Marlow can use the initial reversed foot, also known as a trochee, very effectively to kickstart his lines. But if you're going to kickstart, then you have to stop first. So this stop-start motion prevents the verse from gathering too much momentum. In Claudio's speech, however, there is only one trochee, and it's right at the beginning. I but to die, and go we know not where. So the initial stress of I but kicks off the speech nicely, and it's a useful way for Claudio to interrupt his sister Isabella because they're in the middle of an argument. But there are no more trochees in the rest of the speech. In other words, there's nothing to interrupt the forward motion at the start of every line. It's as though Shakespeare has eased off the handbrake. Secondly, Shakespeare varies the meter in other ways. And to me, the most important one is that he revs the engine by having two strong stresses next to each other at critical points. For example, this sensible warm motion. So if you listen carefully, you can hear that the last two syllables of sensible are very light. We hardly stress them at all which means we land heavily on warm motion. So you end up with two unstressed or relatively lightly stressed syllables followed by two strongly stressed syllables. And later, right at the end, at the climax of the roller coaster ride, we get, Imagine howling! Tis too horrible! So it's the same effect, right, but stronger. Really strong stress on too and horrible, two syllables following each other. And too horrible, that's the basic point of the whole speech. That's what Claudio's saying all the way through. It's too horrible for me to do this for you, sis. And that's where we end up at the crescendo of the speech on those two really heavy stresses. So, what's happening here is the opposite of what was happening in Marlowe you know, where the meter was dominating the, the natural speaking voice, here we've got the rhythm of spoken English starting to take over from the regular ticking of the meter. At the midpoint of Shakespeare's career, you know, here and in the other plays that he wrote around this time, there's a wonderful tension and balance between the energy and the hypnotic intensity of the meter and the natural speech rhythms of people in heightened emotional states. So, one very common way of analysing the rhythm of a passage of verse is to scan or trace its metre, which we've already seen is iambic pentameter here. But another way we could analyse it is to pick out the words that you find yourself naturally stressing when you read it, because they feel like they carry the most emotional energy. If I do this for my reading of the speech, here are the words that stand out the most. I die, rot, needed clod, ice, violence, worse, worse, howling, too horrible. Notice how these words pretty well tell the story of the speech in a stripped-down version. And also, how many rhymes are occurring, as well as alliteration? So this emotional stress, the expressive stress, is the alternative emotional and rhythmic current of the verse that's held in a creative tension 
with the underlying regular drumbeat of the meter. Okay, so Shakespeare has let the handbrake off. He's revving the engine by allowing the stresses to pack together and to convey Claudio's fear and desperation. And thirdly, and maybe most importantly, he starts to dissolve our sense of the poetic line. So, for instance, the speech starts off with some neatly end-stopped lines, which means that the end of each line is aligned with the end of a phrase. I but to die, and go we know not where, to lie in cold obstruction, and to rot. Even without looking at the page, you can tell that we know not where is the end of a line, and also, and to rot. But in the next four lines, three of them are enjammed, which means that the phrasing spills over from the end of one line to the start of the next one. This sensible warm motion to become a kneaded clod and the delighted spirit to bathe in fiery floods or to reside in thrilling region of thick ribbed ice. So, if we slow things down to see how this is working, we've got this sensible warm motion to become a kneaded clod So that's a single clause, and it's actually a line and a half because the line breaks in between become and a kneaded clod. Then the next clause is, and the delighted spirit to bathe in fiery floods, which is approximately the length of a single line, but it actually starts in the middle of one line and ends in the middle of the next one. After that, we get... Or to reside in thrilling region of thick ribbed ice. So, or to reside is the end of one line, and the phrase spills over to in thrilling region at the start of the next line. Now, it's easier to see the pattern on the page, but hopefully you can get the sense of what's happening here. It's as though everything has been shunted on and pushed forward and fallen down into the line below. Or, to go back to our motoring analogy, the handbrake is off, Shakespeare is revving the engine, and now he's ramming the car straight through one line ending after another, like he's demolishing a row of traffic cones that have been laid out by the poetry police. And then, in the next few lines, he really loses it and he floors the accelerator. To be imprisoned in the viewless winds and blown with restless violence round about the pendant world. Or to be worse than worst of those that lawless and in certain thought imagine howling. Tis too horrible. Okay, I don't think I need to go through this line by line. I'm sure you can feel the phrases bursting through the line endings and the whole thing speeds up. The meter is like an engine in top gear and it reaches a climax with that word howling. It's like he's finally crashed the car and the extra stresses aren't too horrible. I like the aftershocks or the car ricocheting into another obstacle after the first impact. And after all of that... The final few lines feel like he's picking himself out of the wreckage and stumbling away towards the hard shoulder. And he's shaking and he's terrified, but he's incredibly relieved just to still be alive. 
the weariest and most loathed worldly life, that age, ache, penury and imprisonment can lay on nature is a paradise to what we fear of death. If we feel like switching up the analogy, and I think Shakespeare has given us plenty of license to do that, we could say that Marlowe's blank verse is like a big marble staircase with one line placed neatly after the other so that his characters can stride down it while we admire them. Claudio's speech feels more like a spiral staircase where one step is always turning into another one and spinning us round and round. And by the end of the speech, we're running in a panic down the stairs and falling headlong down the stairwell. So, if you remember, back in episode 18 on Emily Dickinson, I talked about the three basic types of poetry described by Aristotle. The dramatic the epic, and the lyric. So in these two episodes about Marlowe and Shakespeare, we've seen the development of dramatic blank verse, from a fairly stately and ordered pattern to a very flexible and emotionally expressive medium. I hope I've done enough to show that it's, it's pretty dramatic. <laughs> As I said earlier, at this point in his career, Shakespeare was a virtuoso who could adapt blank verse to express just about any emotion or state of mind or dramatic situation. And here, the overriding emotion is fear. But we could easily have a whole series of episodes showcasing how Shakespeare plays with the structure of blank verse to express different emotions. And I've no doubt we will come back to Shakespeare plenty of times on this podcast. But for our next instalment in this blank verse miniseries, we're going to look at another great English poet who used blank verse to write epic poetry. So fasten your seatbelts, folks. Next month, we will be flying high. I but to die, and go we know not where, to lie in cold obstruction, and to rot, this sensible warm motion, to become a kneaded clod, and the delighted spirit to bathe in fiery floods, or to reside in thrilling region of thick ribbed ice to be imprisoned in the viewless winds and blown with restless violence round about the pendant world, or to be worse than worst of those that lawless and in certain thought imagine howling. Tis too horrible. The weariest and most loathed worldly life that age ache, penury and imprisonment can lay on nature is a paradise to what we fear of death.
William Shakespeare was an English poet, playwright, actor and entrepreneur who was born in 1564 and died in 1616. He wrote more or less 39 plays, most of them for the company he co-founded, the Lord Chamberlain's Men, later known as the King's Men. He also wrote sonnets and narrative poems. Seven years after his death in 1623, two members of the King's Men, John Hemmings and Henry Condell, published a collected edition of his plays. In the front of the book was a poem by Shakespeare's friend Ben Jonson, who wrote, He was not of an age, but for all time. A Mouthful of Air is a poetry podcast hosted by Mark McGuinness. New episodes are released every other Tuesday. If you enjoy the show and you'd like to help me reach more poetry lovers, you can do this by telling a friend about it or by taking a few seconds to leave a rating or even a brief review on Apple Podcasts. If you would like a full transcript of Every episode sent to you via email, including the poem text, you can sign up for this at amouthfulofair.fm slash subscribe. If you'd like to follow the show on social media, you can find all the links as well as a full episode archive at amouthfulofair.fm. The music and soundscapes for the show are created by Javier Whaler. Sound production is by Breaking Waves and visual identity by Irene Hoffman. A Mouthful of Air is produced by the 21st Century Creative with support from Arts Council England via a National Lottery Project grant. Thank you for listening. I'll be back soon with another poem.